thinking ahead when we got this new pulpit. We would have put a mini fridge right here. <laughs> Some people would be worried about what I'd keep in it, though. If you didn't understand what that meant, don't worry about it. <clears throat> I want to welcome all of our guests here today. We are very delighted that you're here with us, and we want you to um, always feel like this can be a, a home whenever you're here. And maybe you're looking for a church home, and if that's the case, I hope that you'll take the opportunity to, to talk to any of us today, and we want to talk to you about what it means to be a part of this fellowship today. Um, we've been speaking of the resistance and joining the resistance and the resistance is an it's a metaphor, an image that we use to describe discipleship and discipleship means living for Jesus in a world that doesn't always respect the ways of Jesus and the authority of Jesus and after the events of this week the shootings, the violence and all of the things that lead up to that, I think that the need to join a resistance for Christ, with Christ, is even clearer. But we need to be also be very clear about what that resistance is and what that resistance is not. When we speak of the resistance that Christ leads, our rightful King, we're talking about a resistance against the evil and the hatred that ruins the goodness of God's creation. The evil and hatred that kills human beings made in God's image. But let's be clear about what the resistance is and it is not. Our sabotage for the kingdom is aimed only at the enemy, at the devil, at the evil one. And it's never aimed at other persons, at any person whatsoever. Because to do so is to disobey our rightful king who even when he was threatened, never retaliated to the harm of another. And you see it in, in his example, in the example of Christ, that in a moment of real threat, in a moment of intense fear, Jesus does not waver from the godly resistance to evil that defined his life. A group of armed men led by Judas approached Jesus and his disciples when Jesus was doing nothing more than praying to his father. They came to arrest him, and one of his disciples, the apostle John, later identified him as Peter. One of them fights back and slices off the ear of one of the armed men who had come to arrest Jesus. But before the conflict could go any further, Jesus put an end to it, and he healed the man who had been wounded, the man who was there to arrest him. Three different Gospels give us the words of Jesus at this moment. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, Put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us, and He would send them instantly. In Luke 22, Jesus said, when, well, when the other disciples see what's about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. 
Finally, in John 18, the way John records the event, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? These three different gospel writers have given us uh, different pieces of information and different details about the event. But if we take all three of these together, I think there's some observations that we can make for us to apply and for the world and the time that we live in today. First of all, there's mention of a reign of darkness or a hour of darkness. In the Matthew 26 text, Jesus says, am I some dangerous revolutionary? He's asking those who come to arrest him. That you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment. The time when the power of darkness reigns. In this, Jesus has called out the real problem. The darkness and the sin, the darkness of sin, the darkness of evil, has distorted vision, it has distorted hearing, it has distorted the perceptions of the heart. Those who should have recognized in Jesus the Word of God and the Messiah, instead of seeing their Savior, they were, they were threatened and instead they saw a troublemaker. They could, have come, they could have gone to the temple. They could have been at the temple ready to hear God's word. But instead, they see only a troublemaker. And sometimes it's like that, even for, those, even for those who claim to be God's children, God's people, that sometimes we even go to church. We come to the place of worship. And yet, because of sin, because of evil, our vision, our hearing is distorted. Fear then leads to violence the clouding darkness the clouding evil it divides us even today and we do not see each other as we ought but we see each other as enemies we see each other through the lens of fear and we feel threatened and that's what often leads to violence these jesus never regarded those who came to arrest him as his enemy even when he was on the cross He prayed that God would forgive them. Those are core, important parts of the gospel story. They are there for a reason. Because Jesus understands how sin has warped the world and brought violence into it from from even before the days of Noah, which we'll get to in a second. Another observation from all of this is that there is a reality of division. It's tempting to look the other way when we're bombarded by the, the news. It's tempting to look the other way and, uh, and just hope that this gets better. Now, I'm not saying that it may not be the healthiest thing to have enough of it. In fact, I think there's actions that we can take that would be better than just absorbing it and letting it create fear and anger and mistrust and contempt. There's no health in that whatsoever. But we never need to ignore the reality of division. The topic of race is one that becomes difficult to talk about. And even when you're preaching this, there's a little bit of trepidation. I saw on a show not recently, and it was a comedy, and they were saying, you know, we all need to remember the old rule, if you're white, keep it light. 
We don't get away with that. We don't, we don't get that luxury. The, the reality of race, I'm, I'm going to give you, first of all, two theological things that we can say about race, because often in these discussions of race, that, that, and I know why there's often a bit of dread of bringing this up, because we're afraid it's going to lead us down the path where somebody's going to say, whose fault is this? Who's to blame? And, th- and then you have statements, and again, you can imagine yourself how far these goes, but you hear, you, you hear things, you know, like, well, I, I wasn't a slave owner, I didn't do anything, I don't hate people, well, I wasn't there, well, this doesn't affect me, well, yeah, but you're privileged, but yeah, you're not. On and on and on it goes. If the problem ultimately at one level is sin, then we know this about sin. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now, that's a reality. Whatever race you're identified with, that's a reality that all of us have to confront. And the whole point in the book of Romans when Paul says this is he's trying to say to the chosen people, the people of Israel, you do not get the right to say, well, the Gentiles are sinful. Thank God we're chosen. He says, no, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And where he's leading to is the fact that Jesus Christ can save us from sin. Now, the other reality is this. God created human beings in his own image. That's a foundational truth in Genesis. Whatever our skin tone, whatever our culture, all human beings, even those that sin, are created in his image. Of all creation and all life, Human beings have the image of God. No other creature can claim that. However, all of this truth doesn't affect the reality of division that we live with. And I think it's important that we not be naive about that. Let me illustrate. I have friends in Dallas that's a couple in ministry. They've been mentors to me and my family. They're white. They have four grown children. Three of their children are white. One is black. Race has not been a barrier in any way to them loving all of their children and the families of those children. Not at all. And just like many of our families here who have different hues and different tones. You know that love is colorblind in that sense. And yet, in a world that's broken, sadly, that world is not colorblind. And I don't want us to be naive about that. Because what my friend had to admit to this week, she said, of all of her family... One of her daughters, her black daughter, and her family, she has to worry about them more. She loves them all the same, and she worries for all of her children, but she worries for that one daughter and her family more. Now, now you, can, you can agree or disagree with her. You can say, well, now, I wait a second. I don't accept the fact that that, that, that child's necessarily under more threat of harm, I mean, especially if they do what they're supposed to. Fine. Agree or disagree with her, but we can't deny the fact that she feels that way. That's her reality. 
And I understand that as her friend. It hasn't been my reality. It hasn't been what I have experienced. But I'm not going to be so naive as to ignore that that's how she feels. And and let me say this too, that if I admit to the fact, if any of us admit to the fact that there has been a sorrowful history of racism in this nation, in even this country, that, should, that, that has and does and should stand for liberty and freedom. If I admit that sorrowful history, that doesn't mean that I've chosen one political side or another. I tend to avoid political sides personally. And maybe that's a political stance in and of itself. But I will tell you this, that admitting that, that knowing that about history, sometimes it just means that we're human. It means that maybe we're passionate about things like justice. I don't know how my friends in Dallas feel. I don't know if I would be treated any differently if I was an African-American preacher and if I was pulled over for a traffic stop or if I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I have to admit, I haven't even thought about that until I was writing this sermon. But this week did make me think about my experience of racism. Now, I'll tell you, it's a personal experience, but it's not directly my experience. And I'm going to try to explain this to you. I've got to tell you the story. In Texas, there was a member of our congregation there that I admired. Her name was Carolyn. For most of the time I knew her, she fought valiantly against cancer. She taught me many lessons in the time that I knew her. She, she, she was never dramatic. She could admit to you that she was sad. But she was very grounded. She had a lot of, she had a, a lot of faith in her struggle with cancer. And I remember one of the lessons she taught me. She said, people always come to me and she say, how do I talk to someone with cancer? She says, you talk to them the same way you talk to anybody else. Ask them about the weather. Ask them about their grandchildren. Ask them about the, 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 their favorite baseball team. And she had that way of disarming people and helping them understand. It was just her spiritual gift. She told me about another struggle that she had been through in her life. It was a struggle during the civil rights era. She was only a child in her hometown in the South. She was only nine years old when her family, they were a part of a civil rights march there in the 60s. And again, she's telling this story without drama, just as a fact. She said that during their very peaceful walk, there was a white woman smoking a cigarette. And that woman came up to Carolyn, and she put the cigarette out on Carolyn's face and said something horrible. And when hearing this, 30 years after the event, and remember, my friend, she's not dramatic. She's not telling this in, in some way that's, that's embellishing the story. She's just telling it as it is. But my blood was boiling. And that's what I consider my connection. I, I'm thinking, would, would that have happened to me? Would that have been me? Would that have been a member of my family? And I, don't, I couldn't experience it that way. But hearing the story this way, through this woman that I respected and loved very much, I'm experiencing a reality of division and something that's wrong. I asked Carolyn, what did your parents do? She said, we did what we had prepared to do. We did what our preachers had taught us. 
We focused on Jesus and how he was mistreated unjustly only because he was doing God's will. And I'm going to tell you three things about that. Number one, it was hard for me to accept that. I'm not saying she's wrong. I'm not saying she's wrong at all. I'm just saying it's hard for me to accept that. I've thought about it since, and I've thought, you know, what if that had been my mother? What would have happened? Well, if you knew my grandfather, that woman with the cigarettes would never smoke again. But I also know that he wouldn't have had to think twice about taking a risk in his world against somebody who was white. That wasn't his experience. Whereas Carolyn and her family, they were consumed with the reality that every step they took, every, every action that they took would only justify the feelings of their enemies. If she had told me, and I'm a, I, I was amazed by the way she told me, but if she had told me that her mother had, had, had just knocked out the woman's nicotine-stained nicotine teeth, I would have said, right on, that's the way it should be. But I'll tell you this, if that had happened, I wouldn't be feeling the same way about this story now. You wouldn't be feeling the same way about it. Because you would say, good, there was justice. Really? But the way the story was told, the way the story did unfold, the way that that family and that community enacted the spirit and attitudes of Jesus, I don't know, use your imagination, maybe it convicted that woman who did that wretched act. Maybe she had to settle with the fact that she did something deplorable to a child. Maybe it eventually brought her to a place where she was convicted of her sin and she repented i don't know but i will tell you this there's a greater chance that that happened to her because of the actions of carolyn and her family than if they had retaliated with violence because that only would have justified that woman's wicked attitude now the other thing i want to tell you is focusing on this wretched woman is really not the point because when I do that, it, ignore, it allows me to ignore the reality that there are places in this world, that there is right here in our country, a culture that has existed that made a black family have to think carefully about what's considered appropriate and inappropriate, even when harm is being done to them. Even when that woman is unquestionably wrong, and there's not a person here today that would say, oh, well, what that woman done, you have to understand it in context. There is no context to understand it. That woman was wrong. And so for me, because I knew Carolyn, because now there was a face to it, this wasn't political, this wasn't theoretical, this wasn't hypothetical. This wasn't general anymore, it became real. And that's why I call that my experience, not of the reality of division and racism alone, but of the reality of how the peace of Christ responds to that reality. Because I, I know it was real in the life of my Christian sister, and it convicts me to humble myself. We have to resist the temptation to look the other way and just hope it goes away. Because the reality of division is something that some of us can ignore, but others can't. But I will tell you, we are all 
We are all harmed if we ignore it, if we ignore the real problems. Because only if we own the problems and name the problems can there really be repentance. And I can tell you this, that all these things, and I understand it's easy, as I said last week, it's easy to do like my great-grandfather and argue with the media. But I can come up with all the arguments, I can come up with all the logical explanations and try to somehow make all of this go away and put it in a container of logic. See? This happened in this situation, this happened in this situation, you got to know the background, got to know the story, everything's fine, put it in the container, it's all good. But have I followed the way of Christ? I've learned something about the power of this topic, and there's other topics like this, this isn't the only one. It's, it's that it has this interesting power to make us dread dealing with it. And it has this interesting power to make us avoid doing something about it. And when I'm confronted with the reality of it, I may even try to dismiss it because I may feel powerless and say, well, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do. And yet, for centuries, we've known that there's something we can do. You're saying, what is it, Benjamin? What, what can we do? What can we do? Well, it all begins with the words of the prophet, Micah 6.8. The Lord has told you what is good. This is what he requires of you, to do what's right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I'll tell you this, that, that the other commandment of the apostles, that the other teaching to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That doesn't erase this. In fact, it makes this more meaningful. Because what are we told to do? Repent and be baptized so that you may walk in newness of life. Wait, walk? Newness of life? Maybe that looks something like the words of the prophet. To walk humbly with God, to do what is right, to do justice, and to love mercy. That's, that's the vision of following him in a world where, and by, by the way, when we see the reality of division, when we recognize the reality of division, then we see the need to be a people who maintain practice and uphold justice. Justice and fairness and equality. Know this, and know this every time you hear it discussed, these are not merely political topics. These are not just topics for the lawmakers and for the policymakers. No. These are things that matter to God. In addition to the text from Micah, the prophet Amos issued a bold call for justice and fairness. Speaking for God, he made it crystal clear that God prefers the practice of justice and righteousness more than he prefers the procedures of proper worship. That's Amos. If you don't like what I said, I didn't write the Bible. It's Amos 5. He says, I hate all your show and your pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. He said, instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Now, I'm going to tell you, in Israel, when this was written, I, I, uh, I'm sure there were people who were working hard to make worship exactly what it needed to be. People who were working hard to make worship down to the detail exactly what it needed to be. Let me illustrate it and update it for us like this. 
If someone devotes themselves to weekly communion, which is good and right, to perfect attendance and worship, I'd love to see all of us devote ourselves to per- perfect attendance at worship. If somebody dedicated themselves to singing and making melody in their heart, always a right and encouraging thing. But if at the same time you treat others unfairly and you don't practice justice, then at the end of that worship, you've still got a problem with God. God doesn't let us away with that. I'll overlook the fact that they're all darkened and upset inside. Why? Because, boy, they follow the rules. They know how to, they know how to read the manual. Got to give them credit for that. No, we don't get credit for that. According to Amos' prophecy, it isn't enough to excel at worship if you do not live out what you worship. And by the way, it makes no sense either because ask yourselves, when we come to worship, what's at the center of our worship? We've just partaken of the Lord's Supper, the bread, the body, the the cup, the blood, the preaching of the gospel. What's at the centering of it? The cross. And sometimes we want to look the other way and we want to ignore it. Crosses are fine as long as we don't have that brutal image of a man dying on it. But for the first century... The cross was always an image of brutality. If we truly worship God as He reveals Himself to us in Christ, then we find at the center of our worship a cross. Crucifixion is a violent act. It was a special method of execution carried out by the authorities. And the point of it was to dissuade rebellion, to maintain the power of the state over those who would even say anything about the oppression of the state. And while crucifixion was... And execution, there are other ways to execute people. This particular method of execution was meant to humiliate. It made the condemned person vulnerable. It put shame on them, not just pain. And have you ever wondered why the cross, then, is God's will? Have you ever wondered why it was the wisdom of God? I mean, if all Jesus has to do is die for us, then couldn't God have come up with, you know, A quick death? A more humane death? That's not it. The point of the cross is to show us that God's design is not for a violent world. That His design is not for a world where death has the ultimate power to give us control and allow us to shape others. It's meant to take To put this shame on Christ and show it back to us and say, you are the ones that should be ashamed. You know, when I heard my friend Carolyn's story, one of the things I thought, and I know it's impossible, but I kept thinking, I wished I could have been there that day. I wish there was some way that I could have been there. Why? What would I have done? Hit a woman? No. No but I would have said, put the cigarette out on me. Go ahead and burn me. I won't do a thing. Just burn me. Burn me, not her. And in some ways, Jesus is saying, I'm going to share in the suffering in this world. If I will take the suffering, if I will will sacrifice, then maybe all the rest of you will get over this problem that you have with fear and hatred and violence. 
See, it's more than just dying for our sins. It's dying because of our sins. And it's dying so that sin will not control us. It's also reminding us that if we follow Christ, we take up a cross. I'm sorry if the image of, I mean, I've even kind of faded it up there. I'm sorry if the image of Jesus Christ, if that, if that bothers, I know it can be very unsettling. But that's the point. The cross is an unsettling picture of what sin does to divide us, to make this world warped, broken. And it's at the center of what we worship. It also convicts us because then, who are we to demand our rights if our Lord, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, if He humbles Himself and makes Himself vulnerable, who are we to demand that we should be in charge? Who are we to demand our way when He's willing to go to this level of sacrifice? How can we then not think that sacrifice for the sake of another, that sacrifice for God is not part of the life that He's called us to live? You know, the events of this week have called us to think about um, safety and suffering. There's a good amount, uh, or safety and security and suffering. There's a good amount of fear in our nation. There's a good amount of, there, are, there has been. But it's moments like this, it's moments like this week that always bring it back up to the surface. In general, there are people who use weapons for protection. And in general, there's people who use weapons to destroy. Now, I don't want to get into the details of the news too much, but to make a point, let me say this. Based on what we think we know, in Baton Rouge, Alton Sterling was carrying a gun legally. Philandro Castile was carrying a gun legally. They were both carrying those guns for protection. Okay? I'm not, stick with me, okay? Just like many of us do, they were carrying weapons for protection. But then there's people who carry weapons and they may even carry them legally, but they use them to destroy. A year ago, Dylan Roof went into a church in Columbia, South Carolina, and killed worshipers. This week, Micah Johnson took a gun and, and killed police officers. Dylan Roof is white. Micah Johnson is black. Both of them acting out of fear, hatred, sin. There's much weariness with these stories, I know, but ignoring them is not going to help us. And there is a cycle here that we have to recognize. It's a cycle, and by the way, I say all this to say, it's not about I don't want to get into the politics of gun control. I think it's better to talk about gun responsibility. I think it's good to talk about responsibility. I don't know. That's a discussion that needs to be had on a political level. And No matter what's decided, I'm going to follow Christ and be an instrument of peace. I want to be licensed to carry weapons of peace. I am licensed to carry weapons of peace. I'm licensed to be part of Christ's movement for peace. And that means that we get past the fear, the hate, the concern about safety, the ridiculous concern about safety and security. 
there's this connection there where violence begets violence. And violence begets violence. Those are the words. They're not Scripture. I know it sounds like Scripture, but those are the words of Martin Luther King, Jr. His text for that was Matthew 26, where Jesus says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Those who rely on violence will end up being consumed and destroyed by that violence. And and Jesus speaks out of the reality that we read about in Genesis 6, 11, where God is grieved. And by the way, if my creator is grieved, I thought to myself, how do I escape a grief that I feel? But God is grieved when he saw how corrupt the earth was in his sight because the earth was filled with violence. Not Notice that it doesn't say perversion it, it doesn't it doesn't say uh, people who wouldn't go to church it doesn't say drunkenness but it says violence i know you don't single out one sin other than another i get that i get that but it's interesting that that's what's pointed out that that's the problem it's like ever, ever since cain and abel this deed gets enacted over and over again i think that's why it's so important that jesus says No more of this. In the words of the Dallas police chief, we're hurting. And it's okay for us to admit that, that as a people, we're hurting. But one of the things Ted told us this morning, you know, that we were committed to ministry to children and to families. And that goes back to something we we voiced in 2008. We said that we were going to be about campus and kids. And then there's two others, healing and hope. And what I would like to see the children of light do, and we can do that right here, that all of God's children, every hue, every tone, every family, blended in monochrome, that, that every family and every church can practice a kind of a healing that shows the world a different way. I don't think it's accidental that when Jesus heals Malchus, that it's his ear that he heals. Have you ever thought about that? Everybody makes the point that, you know, Peter, swinging for the guy's neck, cuts off his ear. He's bad aim, you know. I mean, and, and by the way, if the Bible's all made up and everything, then why not be real dramatic? Have Peter cut his head off and then reattach his head. Now, that just kind of gets silly. But I do think there's a point to the fact that it was his ear. Because at that point, disciples and the, and, the, and the angry, fearful mob, what is it that none of them are doing? None of them are listening. None of them are hearing the words of Christ. He said, if you'd come to the temple and you'd heard me, you wouldn't have been motivated by fear. You wouldn't have had this, this, this worry. If... If we come to Jesus and we hear him and we leave and all the time we're angry and fearful, have we really been listening to Jesus? I'm telling you, sometimes the problem of anger is that we need to have our ears opened up. The instrument of hearing is healed by the touch of Christ. And I think that the healing that can begin and we can begin a healing movement is to first start listening. We need to start hearing Christ. And then we can start hearing others. We don't know all the facts. 
situations that are just on the news or situations that are very close to us. But we know some facts that we've experienced. And whether it's the events like what happened this week or just other events in general. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about us reaching out into the community and there will be people who will come to us and they will say, I've got this in my background and I've done this. And they're afraid to say that. They're not at ease. And what we need to do is we need to say, you know what? We're just going to listen to what you have to say. And then we're going to invite you to come with us and listen to Jesus. But this morning, I want to acknowledge that there is a particular problem with violence. And it may be violence with the gun or the sword, or it may be violence with words. It may just be the anger that's in our heart. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, He said, it's good that you've heard, do not murder. He says, but I'm going to tell you, don't be angry with your brother. Jesus is raising the bar. He's raising the standard. We can be those weak. No, no. Let me roll that back. We must, we must be the agents of God's peace in this world. If you were baptized into Christ, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, then you have a mission of reconciliation. You have a mission of peace. Not just reconciliation with God, but reconciliation with one another. And I'm telling you, the one one reason why I don't want us to turn away and ignore this and say, oh, it's just a political problem. Is because God's people have to be at the forefront being salt and light in a broken world. If people don't think that they can look at God's people and say, that's how we're supposed to live. What's our purpose? Jesus said those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He said no more of this. Will you pray with me? Father... I pray that you'll help us not to ignore the realities in this world that, that cause so much pain and suffering. And Father, keep us from the pit of despair. Keep us from believing that that's just the way the world is. It's not going to get any better until you come back. Father, we don't accept that. We believe that you've sent us out into this world to proclaim good news. We believe that you've sent us out in this world to show the light. We believe that following you, we can give hope where the world sees no hope. And Father, we believe in repentance. We believe in change. We believe and we share in your vision of a flood of justice and mighty rivers of righteousness and that we're a people who once thought that the cross and its ways were foolishness but now we know that it's your wisdom it's the power to save Father if there are any here this morning who need that power of the cross to save I pray that you would put it in their heart to come to you we ask this in the name of our rightful King and Savior Jesus Amen Do you need to come to Christ to be saved? There's a river of righteousness. There's a river of baptism. It's a river of salvation. Let's stand. Let's sing this song. If we can minister to any of you, please meet with us down front or in room 100.